My name's Jenny again. Uh, good morning again. I have the privilege of sharing with you all today as we're continuing in our sermon series. We've been unpacking the meaning of the term, the kingdom of God. And to do this, we've been looking at the kingdom of God using the very beginning of Jesus's first recorded sermon in the book of Matthew. And this is probably his most famous sermon. It's the one we call the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus begins with eight poetic beatitudes, which is just a fancy word for blessings. And I'm not sure, but we call them beatitudes. But And the specific blessing we're studying this morning is found in Matthew 5, verse 9. And this is where Jesus says, what I think probably many of us have heard before, if not every one of us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. And before we dive into this, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us as we study this passage that's very familiar, that God would show us something new. But also I want to pray for Jack because he is our lead pastor for Northeast and he's in Nicaragua right now. Some of you may not know this. So He's there trying to identify maybe a third global mission partner for all of Bethany to have. So I want to pray for him just for a minute. Um, as, their t- as a team, he's there with a team from Bethany. And they're looking at Agros International, which is an organization based in a lot of different countries, but specifically Agros International as they're working in Nicaragua. So let's pray for him, and then we'll begin our time together. God, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to, to worship this morning, to dedicate a baby God in your name and in this family. Lord, as we're going to learn even more about what it means to be a family of faith today, I pray you would open our minds and open our hearts and speak to us by your spirit and through your word. But we also are mindful, God, that this morning our pastor Jack is in Nicaragua worshiping you. And we ask you would bless his ministry Bless his time there, and God, especially open his eyes and the team's eyes to see what, what work you're doing with Agros, and if this is the right fit for Bethany moving forward. We pray for wisdom for them, and thank you for their safety. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I was studying this last week and studying this Blessed Are the Peacemakers, I was starting to realize that um, peace, the word peace for me, is kind of a slippery word. And the first thing I thought of uh, as I was kind of mulling that over, have you ever been in a church where they pass the peace? Anyone pass the peace before? This is common in a Lutheran church, Episcopal churches. It's possible they're doing it in the sanctuary right across the way from us. Uh, Presbyterian churches sometimes do this. And I always cringed a little bit when it was time in my Lutheran church growing up to pass the peace. Uh, For one, I'm an introvert, and I was especially an introvert as a kid. And so talking, making small talk with adults, even for 30 seconds, was kind of a terrifying concept. But also, I kind of never really knew what passing the peace meant. Is it like passing potatoes? Is it like passing a football? What, What is passing the peace? And is it more like, even well, and even with a master's degree in divinity, from seminary, I'm still not sure I could really tell you what's happening there. And it's a tradition that's been around thousands of years. I'm not actually trying to mock it. I'm just telling you, for me, when I do that, I'm still not quite sure what's happening. Peace just has a lot of meanings, actually. In our English language, but even in scripture, in the Greek language, the Greek word for peace, irene, has a lot of meanings. It can mean an inner calm, kind of a centeredness spiritually. 
It can mean security or safety. It can mean the absence of conflict. It can, uh, at a macro level, it, it can mean, right, the absence of war between nations. Or, in scripture, it can mean the peace that passes understanding. The peace of Christ. And so there's a few things I want to clear, clear up about this word before we get into our study. Because we're, and most importantly, we're not talking about a, a peace that is the mere absence of conflict. It's not just the absence of conflict. And I think that's often kind of where our brain goes. Because if that were our end, we would just try to shut down any conflicts that are happening, no matter what. And that's not what Christ is calling us to. But ironically, this is sort of my default personality. Uh, when I was a junior in college, my best friend and college roommate from when I was a freshman decided to get married and move out. She was just two weeks after turning 21. She marries her high school sweetheart and then moves to Shreveport, Louisiana. We were in college at SPU, so across the country. Her new husband was stationed in the Air Force there. And you can imagine that was hard for m me uh, as an introvert with a few close friends. So she's now in Louisiana. Summer break comes just a few months after they got married, and I fly down to visit her. And, a little, um, and, and they had a little one-bedroom apartment in Shreveport. And a little background info on me at, as a 20-year-old Jenny. Uh, I, had, I was a little bit sheltered as a college student. That might shock some of you. Probably not. But at that point, uh, I had just started dating someone for the first time, no serious relationships. Outside my immediate family of my parents and my sister, I don't remember ever having a fight with anyone. And so here I am, I'm sitting in Susan's apartment in Shreveport, and she and her new husband are, you know, 21 years old and living 3,000 miles from home and trying to figure out married life. And you can imagine there were a few conflicts, arguments, while I was there. And some raised voices and some slammed doors and maybe a few swear words and nothing that even, nothing that most people don't face in marriage especially the first few years. But this was my sweet best friend. And I was shocked. And I remember so badly just wanting to disappear out of the, through the walls, right? Or to just do anything to make that fight stop. The fighting stop, make peace. I was that way as a kid. Anytime my parents fought, my sister fought with my parents, I would, I would want to do anything I could to peace, peaceify things, right? But I want to warn us today, that's not the kind of peacemaking we're talking about. Peace isn't the mere absence of conflict. And it's definitely not the avoidance of conflict, which is me. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the conflict averse, right? Which would have been a more apt description of me. Unless we settle for the cheap kind of peace, which is that, it's an important distinction to make. And so true peacemaking is usually difficult. It means stepping into conflict, not avoiding it. It means something much deeper and more complete than the absence of conflict. That's my little caveat this morning. And this is why if you noticed on your outline, I know some of us are more outline-oriented than others, but there's an outline in your bulletin. We're using a building metaphor this morning to consider what it means to be a peacemaker. 
the way Jesus is talking about it. And that's because it's not a small task. It's not something you check off a list. It's more like building a house. And I'd like to, to argue with us this morning that this is what the world sees as, as true and effective peacemaking. It's just the very sort of tip of the iceberg or outside of a house. And people who know more about this than me tell me that a, a foundation of a house is really important. But more than that, you need, a, what is it called? A framing. <laughs> you need a framing of a house. In, before you put siding on, before you put roof on, you need a frame. And so we're going to talk about that foundation. We're going to talk about that frame before we talk about what that actual peacemaking looks like out in the world. We need a foundation and a framing that are solid or we're going to fall back into this cheap kind of peacemaking. So what is that foundation? This is sort of the Sunday school answer question because uh, probably anyone could could tell you my big idea of what our foundation is, right? One word. It's, yes, Jesus. I think somebody said it. <laughs> but the truth is, this is true. And of course, I'm going to use plenty more words to explain it. But the truth is, we have a God who loves peace. At the very core of God's character, peace resides. Gideon was one of the judges of Israel, recognized this when he came face to face with an angel of the Lord. And as soon as he had that experience, he built an altar to God and he said, he called it, the Lord is peace. This is who God is at his very center. When Isaiah the prophet writes of what the coming Messiah will, will be, he says he will be the wonderful counselor. He'll be an all, the almighty God. He'll be the prince of peace. And all over the New Testament, of course, the authors refer, especially in their benedictions and their openings, to the God who is the God of peace. And so if that's true, then Jesus is the human image of what God's peace looks like. And, and this is like all the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, right? Blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus is the peacemaker, the ultimate example and embodiment of what it means for us to be peacemakers, what it looks like. And the reality is, Jesus wasn't just a peacemaker during his life on earth, right? He is the peacemaker. Now, tomorrow, he was here, he is here to make peace for us, for you and for me. And before we can ever hope to understand the deep, true peace of God, we have to understand this. The text Matt just read for us lays this out pretty clearly in Colossians 1. Thanks for your affirming of the text I chose. Uh, Colossians 1 says, we were at war with God. We had shunned him. And I'm using we intentionally in the collective sense because we are Israel's history. Our human history is collective. Israel's history reveals over and over again how each time God would reach out, seeking to restore relationship, seeking reconciliation with the human humanity. We humans kept rejecting him. We would ignore our creator. We were missing out on the chance to be in relationship with the almighty God. And instead, we were choosing violence and idols and emptiness. And this is the pattern throughout history before Jesus, from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel, from King Solomon and King Ahab to the 
prophets in the time of the exile. This war with God is part of our history as human, human beings, but it's also part of our personal history. It's not just collective. We, as each of us as individuals, and this is hard for me sometimes, to admit still, we have warred with God. Some of us are still warring with God. We've tried to be our own God, or we've at least tried to control our God, which is where this idea of idols came from, someone we can see and control. We've remade our creator in our own image, or in the image of something we think would be easier, and turned away from the one who made us. This is the very root of our lack of peace, individually and as a human race. And so God does the unthinkable. And this is a familiar story, but this is core to this calling of it for us as peacemakers. God does the unthinkable. God becomes a human being, right? He becomes a mortal, hopeless baby of a poor young mom and dad. And God lives as a human being. And doesn't just live, God dies as a human being. And this act, this step towards us is God's ultimate invitation to find peace with him, to stop making war. He gives us the very ability to have peace. Paul writes in his letter to the church in Colossae, part of what Matt read, for God was pleased to have all God's fullness dwell within Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile him to himself all things, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now I want us to notice here how this works in Jesus's life because this making of peace wasn't complacent. It wasn't avoiding conflict. Jesus walks straight into our mess and offers up everything, ultimately his life, his blood for our peace so that we might know that God loves us beyond a shadow of a doubt so that we would no longer see ourselves as God's enemies but as God's sons and daughters. And this is our foundation for knowing peace. It's the assurance of knowing that we are loved and that nothing, not our past, not our failure, not the war we've made with God, not even death can separate us from that love. Part of the reason, going back to my time in Louisiana, part of the reason I had such a hard time while they were fighting down there, as I didn't know them as a couple very well. I didn't know Adrian, her husband, very well, because he'd been living across the country for their whole engagement. And so part of the reason I couldn't stand to be in that room while they're fighting is I didn't know whether their love was deep enough to sustain that kind of fight, right? I didn't know that Adrian was going to stick around. I didn't know that this fight wouldn't be the one where someone was moving out at the end. And just in case they ever listen to this sermon, I didn't actually ask their permission to share this story. They're not here. Um, I'll let you know this, that's, that this April, Susan and Adrian will celebrate their 14th wedding anniversary. And when I witness them fight today, which is really rare, I have far less anxiety, right? I can stay in the room, actually. But many of us know that that's not always true that many kids, even with the most stable parents, have a lot of anxiety and fear when they witness their parents fighting for that same reason. Do we know deeply enough that 
that that love is going to, that there's a foundation there. And unfortunately, we don't always prove our kids wrong. And adults don't always have the foundation that they can build lasting peace on top of. And that's why our foundation for peace can't be anything less than Christ. Nothing else, no one else is strong enough. Everyone else and everything else will ultimately crumble. But knowing Jesus better and better and experiencing that love God has for us more and more is the, is the very thing that supports and cares for that foundation of this house we're building today. It's the support for every other relationship we have. And certainly, as we're then trying to be peacemakers in the world. So, that's the foundation. The framing is the next thing. And, and I was just kind of embarrassed as we were studying this as a teaching team and I realized I, didn't, I, didn't, I wouldn't have been able to come up with this on my own. But I need to go build a house. I would argue that our framing is to be actively engaged in God's church. In our human history, our war has not always only been with God. And I don't actually have to give, spend very long on this point because everyone in this room, I think, knows it. In Genesis, Cain is the third human we ever meet, and he kills his brother because of jealousy. King David kills a man in his army, right? Because he wants his, his wife. I don't need to keep going. I doubt anyone in this room wants to argue with me that, that as a human race, we've had a tough time not killing one another, much less experiencing the deep and whole peace of God. But Jesus' death and resurrection does not only mean that we're reconciled with God. It means we're reconciled with each other in God's church. In Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, this is one of my favorite passages of all of Scripture. Ephesians 2, it talks about how the church is now going to be after Christ. How there will no longer be a chosen race of people, the Jews, and then everyone else, the Gentiles. How instead... Starting in verse 13 of Ephesians 2, Paul says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of, Jesus, of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups into one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Paul's saying Jesus is our peace with one another, not just with God, but that in fact, Jesus has made us one people. And that there is no more Jew versus Gentile. There's no more male versus female or black versus white or Arab versus European. All those dividing walls have been broken down in his peacemaking death and resurrection. And how does this possibly work? You, you, you should ask that question because it's a good question. How does, that, how does that possibly work? We still see this happening all over our world. Well, let me, let me tell you. No, uh, this, we're still learning that, right? But a little later in Ephesians 2, we tell Paul, we read Paul tell the church, because of Jesus' work, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building joins together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So I might not have come up with the building metaphor all by myself, but the, 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 it's in scripture a few times. But the reason we're able to experience this unbelievable kind of peace 
together is everyone who follows Christ is now a brother or a sister of Christ in God's household. Literally, because we are now a family. It's what we were just talking about with Eric and Jenna. And Ellie, every one of us in this room has been adopted into the same family, right? All of us have been given a new identity, and that doesn't mean, it doesn't matter that I'm a woman anymore. It does. Or that it doesn't matter that I'm actually a white woman anymore. It does. It matters. What it means is I'm now free to be a woman and not be at war with men. It, doesn't, it means I'm free to be white and not be suspicious or afraid of people of other races. It means I can be more fully who I am created to be and not be afraid. Adoption is a powerful word. It's one we often skip over. We miss the fact that Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, has invited us to be his brothers and sisters. To be seen by God just as God sees Jesus. Remember at his baptism when God says, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. God's saying that about every one of us. I love this picture of a household. To not just be adopted in name. God's not saying I see you like a daughter or I see you like a son. God's saying no. Jesus is saying, hey, come live in my house. Eat my food. Sleep in the room next door. But the catch is, it's not just me God's inviting to, to do that. It's you. You're sleeping next door too. We're no longer strangers. We are no longer humans at war with each other. We are brothers and sisters living in the same household. And the reason this is the framing on the house of peace is that Jesus knows that we need one another. We need to not only be in relationship with our creator, but we need to know that we have a family that we can rely on. And the best way we humans experience that is with other humans, showing us, reminding us, loving us when we mess up, sticking around and being there the next morning after the slammed door or the swear word was thrown. Christ makes this possible, not us. We were forgiven much, individually and as a human race, in Christ's blood. And as those who've been forgiven, we've received the power to, to forgive which is, I think, a key part of this living in relationship with each other. One familiar example of this peacemaking that's going on within the church is from Rwanda. I know we've probably speak, spoken of these examples before, but I want to just briefly remind you of what's going on in churches in Rwanda. They've been working for 20 years in the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide, 20 plus now, to seek to further the reconciliation efforts so the Hutus and Tutsis can worship in the same buildings, same churches. I recently found a CNN article that was published 20 years after the genocide, so in 2014, about a Rwandan pastor named Stephen Gahigi. And he fled to Burundi when the genocide started, when the killing started. And then when he came back, he found his family was gone. He found they had been all killed. His home was destroyed. But a few years later, he decided to become a pastor. And he graduated seminary, and he chose to go to a, a prison in a place called Bugacera. And this prison housed thousands of people who'd been convicted of perpetrating the genocide. And he even met the men, a group of 15 men, who had been responsible for killing his sister. 
And what did he preach to those people in prison? That God forgives them. Keep in mind, most of Rwanda is Christian. Most of those people in prison were Christians. And Stephen preached to them that they were loved by God. And when the reporter who was writing this article asked him, how could you do that? He said he was having a really hard time even saying the words until, and I want to just read a portion of this article to you now, until one night, he writes, I had a dream about a mob beating Jesus as he hung on the cross. And a voice told me, those people beating Jesus are the ones Jesus helped. They killed your countrymen and your family, but you can help them. He said, I cried all night, but when the crying stopped, I felt this light and this love, and I believed that I had the power to forgive. That was Jesus' mission, he said, to forgive the sins of all men. And I just believe if Jesus can work that kind of reconciliation, there's a reason we keep repeating that story, because if Jesus can work that kind of reconciliation in Rwandan prisons and churches, it's, and it's happening everywhere there, Jesus can do it anywhere. But we as the church have to start to see and experience each other as brothers and sisters. And we have to keep in mind that this means real relationship as siblings. So it's not sweeping our problems under the rug and pasting on happy faces. Don't, don't hear that. For Stephen in Rwanda, his ministry to Christians who are involved in the killing his own family was not rooted in pretending the genocide never happened. It was not sweeping anything under the rug. Instead, they had to face the truth of that together and repentance and forgiveness brought about real, lasting, whole peace. It's not perfect because we're still human, but it's real. Jesus prayed for the church in John 17 and the crux of his prayer was that we would be one, right? That we would be unified. Not that we'd agree about everything, not that we would sing the same way or look the same way or talk the same way, but that we'd try to truly see and care for each other as brothers and sisters. And this is the reason this is considered the framing on the house. It's the experiencing this deep peace with each other is foundational to then our support system as those who bring Christ's peace into the world. We can't hope to offer the world the deep and lasting peace of Christ if we can't try and experience it here as well. Notice that the blessing in Matthew 5, 9 is blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called, what? Children of God. They'll experience what it means to be in God's household. They'll know the deep love of the Father that extends to everything else they do. They'll have as their source the God of peace as their father, and love brothers and sisters as their support. So, it's time to make our house look like a house. All of this up to now is, is our foundation for going out and being Christ's presence in the world. And so I want to give us some ideas of what this means, and what does it look like to do this not just inside the church. Now, for starters, we can't forget our foundation, we can't forget our framing, but in the Sermon on the Mount, just a little later, in Matthew 5 still, Jesus fleshes out what he means by peacemaking. And this is a hard verse, a hard few verses. Matthew 5, 43. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. 
that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Does that ring a bell? It's the same, it's the same promise. Children of God. So Jesus is, is telling us a few things. There's two things I want to pull out of that verse, and then we will close. This is not a call to simply avoid your enemies, to avoid conflict. It's, it means actively loving them. It's not passive. It's not going to keep you away from the action. It's not going to keep you out of conflict necessarily. It's going to perhaps thrust you into the midst of situations that will be hard, that might cause you anxiety or worse, that will cause you to fear for your safety at times. And so I want to say two things about this peacemaking we find in Jesus' words in Matthew 5:43. First, to make peace in the way of Christ, to really love your enemies, must mirror Christ's incarnation. So it is to be incarnational. The incarnation of Christ, if that's not a familiar term, is just God becoming human. God coming to be with us. Because I think when Jesus is saying, love your enemies, he is not talking about developing a warm, fuzzy feeling for them. I think he's talking about following his lead, which showed him leaving his throne in heaven and coming to walk and suffer and be with us as humans. Now we can't literally become another human being, but we can go as far as to walk in their shoes, so to speak, to find empathy for them, to learn who they are, to try to understand how God is in them because God created them. Where is that thumbprint of God on them? And we can do this with people close to us. Sometimes it's the roommate or the spouse or the child who can feel a little bit like an enemy at times, right? Not all the time, but the, the moments. When conflict comes, what does it look like to be incarnational with your spouse? Right? What does it look like to see as they see and enter their pain? Or with your kids or with your best friend? What does that look like? We can do this with our coworkers. This one was convicting for me a little bit. None of the coworkers here, but, right? I know in my experience, gossip, a little bit of com competitiveness maybe, is rampant in the workplace sometimes. And we can enter into that gossip, or we can avoid the conversation altogether, or we can step into loving the person it's about, who's being treated poorly, finding out their story, learning what, what they need, what, they, what are their desires right now. Showing them how loved they are. Bringing the presence of Christ's peace to that relationship. And then we can do this when stepping into bigger ministry. Some of our Northeast families are right now, and we've talked about it a few times, but are, are part of a World Relief Seattle Good Neighbor team. Just a few weeks ago, they welcomed a Muslim refugee family to Seattle. It happens to be a single mom with four kids, I think from Iraq, and the team's preparing to walk with her for the next year. You can bet there's going to be some peacemaking opportunities in the midst of that. And it's not going to be simple. They're going to be getting to know this woman and her kids and their story, despite some language barriers. And they're going to be working with her to help her find work, find schools, find housing, to show this family how loved they are by God, to be with and for them. It's a peacemaking work. This can be true with so many types of ministry. We can either keep a barrier between us and what might be messy, might be conflict, 
where we can step in, and it's hard. And I want to offer a couple, maybe, cautions on this. Because first, I'm really aware that I've been a recipient of the work of many peacemakers. The fact that I'm standing up here or that I'm a Christian does not mean I don't also need the peacemaking work of others in my life. I had, when I was in seminary, I had a professor, Brenda Salter-McNeil, who is a local speaker and author on racial reconciliation. And she was a peacemaker in my life, someone who offered me some hard truths, honestly, about race in the world, about my story, kind of in a human history perspective, and also offered this incredible forgiveness and blessing. There are black and Native American and Japanese American, and the list goes on and on. People in our country have a lot to teach us, who might be white or European in the room, about what it means to be a peacemaker. And so I want to honor that. I want to say, being a peacemaker doesn't always mean you're the forgiving one. It sometimes means you are the repenting one. It sometimes means you are the one who's learning humbly, who's learning how to accept forgiveness. And second, that's my first caution, this humility that comes with this. And then second, to be a peacemaker is not to be a peacekeeper. And as I was preparing for this, I was slipping up several times and saying peacekeeper when I meant peacemaker. So if I did that, I didn't mean it. Peace. Making is not the same as peacekeeping. When abuse or violence or oppression are occurring, a peacemaker reveals the truth of what's happening. It doesn't ignore it. And, and works to bring about the end of that oppression or violence or abuse. And Jesus did this. He did not keep the peace when there was only a false peace there. Right? Not when he, when he was in the synagogue turning over tables. He was not keeping this false peace that existed in those outer courts. And when he was speaking to the Pharisees who were cheating the law to benefit themselves, he was not quiet. He did not keep the quote-unquote peace. And so I just want to give those two caveats to this work. And then finally, that nicely transitions to my short final thing that comes from Jesus' words in Matthew 5.43. If you haven't figured this out already, this is not an easy calling. This is hard. And it's why we see that closely following Jesus' call to love your enemies, we see the call to pray for those who persecute you. Prayer. We desperately need it in this work. We need the Holy Spirit's direction for where we're even called, what situations we're called to do this with. But we also need to be praying for our enemies. And praying for our enemies means seeking God's heart for them. Asking the Spirit to lead you in how to love them. Jesus was able to pray for his enemies famously as he was dying, right? Father, forgive them. But I think the only reason he's able to do that in that moment is he's been doing it. For his whole ministry, he'd been praying for his enemies. We must be able to do that and perhaps it's the first work. Perhaps it comes after we've started to seek how to love them. It's a chicken and an egg question for me. Because sometimes it is very hard to pray. You may know this for someone who is feeling like an active enemy at the time. And so these, are, these go hand in hand. Truthfully, in conclusion, I was pretty convicted as I was, as I was studying this this morning. If you can't tell yet, by the way, I'm sort of laughing at myself. 
there are conflicts in my life right now I'm avoiding. There's conversations I'm afraid to have, both inside and outside the church. There's a work I think God might be calling our church to in partnering with the school in Seattle, in our neighborhood. I was at a um, sort of meet and greet with some vice principals this week from Jane Adams and Nathan Hale, just exploring what could it look like to partner with one of these schools or both of them. And I left that Thursday not feeling excited and energized, but a little bit overwhelmed by the problems that these schools are facing. And I was feeling like, how do we have anything to offer them as Bethany Northeast? And that's the fear, an example of the fear that can keep us from entering into this work God has put before us. Fear is the quickest deterrent in living the life, in living into Jesus' call to be those who make peace, to embody his reconciling work in the world. And so I want to once again invite us to return to this knowledge that we are in God's household, that nothing we can do will bar us from being in God's family. All we have to do is accept that. The freedom that comes with that knowledge, when we fully embrace it and seek to learn that better and better, that freedom is boundless to then enter into the things that might have a decade ago caused me to want to disappear into the walls, right? It's a giddy feeling to know that you are fully loved. If any of you have ever fallen in love, you might know that. That's the feeling that propels you to do crazy things, like enter into God's work in this kingdom. And so that's what you're invited to this morning, to experience that tremendous love God has for you that it might empower you to then be a peacemaker in the world. We are going to respond this morning and invite the musicians to come back on stage. In your bulletins, if you grabbed one, there are little cards, and they say three little words, I can see dot, dot, dot. And we've been doing this kind of throughout our series, trying to show not only that we have a lot of work to do as God's people, but also where the work is already happening in God's kingdom, in this world. So I want you to write, I can see, and then I want you to think about some place you've seen God's work as a peacemaker happening. So it might be in your own heart, and it might be in your own family, and it might be in a situation in our city or even bigger. But I wanted you to write down one way you see God working as peacemaker. We have prayer ministry. And then uh, if you want to bring them forward, there's a basket up here I'll have. And you can drop them in these last two songs. And we'll also have prayer ministers, I believe, over here um, on the wall who would love to pray with you about anything. Let me pray for us as we conclude this morning. God, thank you that you are our peacemaker, that you have invited us, God, to be at peace with you, to experience the depth of love you have for us. God, would you empower us to be your peacemakers in this world, to see with your eyes, God, to live without fear. Lord, help us to now Remember and see and be encouraged by the things you are already doing in this world and already doing in our own families, our own hearts. And God, bring those to mind that we might be encouraged as we go out of this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.